Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Lisette Baron Carvajal, a host of the channel. Today, we will be talking to Lina El Castillo, a professor of University of Texas at Austin, about her new book, Crafting a Republic for the World, Scientific, Geographical, and Historiographic Inventions of Colombia, published in 2018. Lena, welcome to the show. We're very excited to have you. Thank you so much, Lisette, for inviting me to be here. I'm very excited to be here. I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself, your background, where you grew up, how you decided to study Latin American history and specifically Colombian history. Oh, sure. So I was born in Bogota, Colombia. And when I was very young, my mom decided that she wanted to a career change from being a lawyer to being an opera singer. And in order for her to launch her opera singing career, she had already, done, well, she had a reason to become an opera singer because she's very talented, had perfect pitch, and had already sang at the National Opera House in Colombia. And through different family friends, was um, able to make connections in New York and found a very good voice coach in New York. And so she decided to move to New York with me and my brother. And this was when I was five years old. And so from five through college years, I grew up in New York outside of uh, New York City in Westchester County. And every time that I was getting close to learning anything about Latin America in our history textbooks, it would be the end of the year and we never would actually learn anything about Latin America because there just was never enough time. So it wasn't until I went to college and I was able to select the courses that I wanted to take that I was able to learn more about Latin America. And I had a lot of curiosity about Colombia, the place where I came from. And by coincidence, one of the professors at Cornell at that time, Marie Roldan, she was amazing and she blew my mind and knew so much about Latin America and about Colombia specifically. And I connected with her very well. Um, and I decided, so much so that I decided to do my study abroad when I was in junior year um, to do it in Colombia. And so that was my first um, exposure to learning about Colombia in Colombia. And I took courses in history. Uh, and I actually learned more about the Anal School, which is something that was totally new for me as an undergraduate, because I didn't understand that there were different ways of approaching historical analysis. So I learned that in Colombia. And I also learned about Colombian history and culture there. And so when I graduated college, um, I decided that I wanted to go back to Colombia because of not just the content that I learned, but everybody that I was working with, um, with, that I was learning from as a study abroad student, the professors had direct connections to some of the highest echelons of political power and were directly influencing policy and 
it was a very exciting time. And so that was something that I was very interested in. And so when I went back to Columbia, I managed to find my first job working with the history department in Los Andes, in Bogota. And I worked as a teaching assistant for a professor who was um, doing a Fulbright uh, year there in Los Andes. And so he had to teach a colonial Latin America history class. So I was a TA for him. And he had graduated from his PhDs from the University of Miami. Um, his name is Michael La Rosa. And by coincidence, Michael La Rosa also knew many of the people that I had worked with in La Javeriana and Los Andes. And many of the people there had also gotten their PhDs from the University of Miami, including Germán Mejia, who had done 19th century Colombian history, urban history in Bogota. And he was the one that um, also got me very excited about Bienal School and thinking about history from different angles. And so these connections to the University of Miami um, that were um, evident through the different people that I was working with, both in the Javeriana and Los Andes, made me very curious about pursuing my own doctorate. And so I did my doctorate at the University of Miami. And part of the reason that I did was because while I was working in Colombia, so after I worked as a teaching assistant for Michael La Rosa, I worked at the Javeriana as a coordinator for an academic department in political science in the Javeriana and international relations. And one of my job duties I learned was that I needed to teach a class. And I offered that I could teach on U.S. history or Latino Latino literature, which was a course that I had designed for Los Andes to teach English. And they said that I couldn't do that, that I really needed to either teach the history of Colombia in the 19th century or the history of Colombia in the 20th century. And since I didn't know anything about either, coming out of my undergraduate degree in the United States, I said, okay, I'll start with the 19th century. <laughs> <laughs> and so I felt deeply indebted to the students that I taught at that time because I was learning about 19th century Colombian history as I was teaching it. And I was only about maybe two or three years older than my students. So it was a challenge to say the least. So it was in large part because of that experience that I felt that if I wanted to be serious about teaching and researching and um, talking about and uh, writing about Colombian history, I needed to pursue a PhD. And so that was the connections that I made through graduates of the University of Miami program taught me that there are just some wonderful people there. And a lot of these graduates came at University of Miami was focused on training folks in history and in international relations to go back to their places of origin, Colombia, Argentina, Chile. And so at the time, that was what I was thinking that maybe I wanted to do. And so that's where I started doing my PhD. And because of my debt to the 19th century, I kind of went deeper into it and became fascinated by it. Because by when I was teaching about the 19th century, that most of the histories that were available to me at the time, this was in the 90s, were about, uh, well, there's some work on independence. This was before the bicentenary. So there was some information about that available. There was a lot on caudillos and chaos and violence. And then there was much more kind of work on the a political history of the late 19th century. And so that's what I taught. And that's what I knew up to that point. And so it was as I got deeper into the dissertation that I um, started to think about science as an important framework to understand what was going on in the 19th century. 
And just like as a as a little anecdote, I I studied in Universidad de los Andes as an undergrad. So it's yeah, it's fascinating to hear that you were actually there um, yes. too. <laughs> I, was, I was there from '97 uh, and kind of the spring of '96, '97 part of it, and then after that, yeah. So I was there for several years. Maybe now we can move on to. Um, to the book, can you tell us how you came to write Crafting a Republic for the World? How did your project change from your dissertation to the actual monograph? Well, um, it's an interesting story. So I, um, so when I finished the dissertation, uh, the dissertation itself uh, took on a kind of 100-year period, much longer than what the book does. Uh, I think I still was going with a little bit of the Hundred Years of Solitude model from Ezio <laughs> Marcus, which worked for the dissertation. Um, I, so the dissertation covered into the late 19th century and early 20th century, um, continuing a theme of science and engineering, railroads and um, mapping. So the dissertation itself was primarily about engineers and science in Colombia during over the course of the 19th century. But the focus of the dissertation, the, the way I had framed it, tended to rely on a lot of the work that had been done up until that point that was linked to thinking about how foreign expertise was a very important component to how science would be done in places like Colombia and Latin America, which has this undercurrent of how derivative the sciences could be there. Um, that it, there weren't very sophisticated signs, that they didn't have the resources to develop their own kind of contributions to global knowledge. And that was just a taken for granted that underwrote the structure of the dissertation. Having said that, the dissertation itself did do enough original work to win a prize from the University of Miami, the Barrett Prize for the Best Dissertation um, of the Year of 2000. And eight, and it also won a prize from Colombia, the Banco de la República, for a best dissertation for that year. And the prize from Banco de la República was to have my dissertation translated into Spanish for Colombian audiences. But this was almost a decade ago. And so what I told them at the time when I won the prize, I was very honored uh, but I told them that I wanted to engage in some revisions to the dissertation and I was turning it into a book. So ideally what I wanted was for them to translate the most recent version of the dissertation so it would be kind of the best translated book possible in Spanish. And so this was the agreement we had. And over the course of a, roughly a decade, I was still revising the dissertation. Five years went by, five or six years. Uh, I did so many revisions to the dissertation that it actually became a second book project, very different from the dissertation itself. Um, and we can talk about that later about my second book project. But by the time I had made those revisions and gotten so far ahead, I got a contact again from the Banco de la República saying, hey, where are we with the possibility of translating your dissertation? <laughs> <laughs> and it coincided that I met with... Um, uh, a wonderful graduate student, Miguel Cuadro Sanchez. He's um, Nancy Applebaum's graduate student at the University of Binghamton. And he had talked with me 
about how useful the dissertation was to him. And I also talked with a couple other people in Colombia because they had also found the dissertation itself useful. And I was like, well, let's go back and see what I actually have in the dissertation that maybe I can you know, turn into a book for the purposes of the translation in Colombia. I didn't want to lose that. And I started kind of revising that a bit more. And the framework, it was a breakthrough. It took a long time, but the breakthrough came when I read Jamie Sanders' book, The Vanguard of the Atlantic World. And reading that book, everything just clicked because what I was seeing was how the elites in Colombia were not derivative scientists. They were actually engaging in fundamentally new and deeply researched and very also problematic and conflictive kinds of experiments with republicanism. So it wasn't just that they were experimenting with the political system. They were developing an array of sciences that would allow them to conduct these experiments with republicanism. So it wasn't just the political sphere that was transforming in the middle of the 19th century. These journalists and educators and geographers and engineers and priests and an array of thinkers were engaging actively in trying to support republicanism through an array of sciences that included cartography and history writing and ethnographic portraits of the population in Colombia. I think that is one of your main intervention to actually highlight how Republican elites in New Granada um, imagined and crafted a republic for the world because there was no model to follow. Um, maybe now we can get into more of the main arguments of the book. And I want us to start by the first few sentences of your book, of your introduction. So there you say, there are no colonial legacies in Spanish America, yet this book is about them. Can you please tell us a little bit about this very powerful assertion? Can you tell us how you came to center um, your book on this idea of quote-unquote colonial legacies? And why is it so important to, uh, you know, readers and Colombians in general to know that this idea of colonial legacies is actually a product of specific historical actors and a specific historical time. Can you elaborate how it is important to write of something that even if it's a fiction, it is a very powerful one that has a lot of impact on how we understand not only Colombian history, but also Latin American history more generally? Of course. Yeah. So actually, this links back actually to what we were just talking about, the translation for the Banco de la República. Um, mm -hmm. Because once I finally kind of unlocked that key of how to reframe the work that these historical actors were engaging in, I then was able to see how these historical actors were themselves engaging with this question of colonial legacies. That they had, for each science that they developed, those sciences were developed in order to overcome the obstacles that had come with the Spanish monarchical rule. And so... That was kind of the new framework that allowed me to organize the book. And that's where I could see my contribution really um, 
kind of moving forward in terms of how we think about Latin American history, because ultimately, so this question of colonial legacies, it's something that's with us constantly. If there's anything that one will think of when you think about Latin American history is how powerful those colonial legacies have been. This is what you get in kind of any modern or colonial Latin American history class. Colonial legacies is a very powerful explanatory category. So the thing is, when I say in the book, that colonial legacies don't exist, yet this is a book about them. I'm not saying that there, so I, I acknowledge that there is such a thing as deep Iberianization that happened over the course of the 300 years of Spanish monarchical rule. That's undeniable, it's undeniable that it exists, right? So when I was translating, I was working to translate my book into Spanish, the two people that were helping me with the translation, Maria Jose Montoya and Nicolás uh, González Quintero, both of them were saying, well, for a reader in Colombia to hear that colonial legacies don't exist, it's kind of jarring. And so I also prefaced the book in Spanish with a note that talks about what I mean. And when I'm talking about colonial neg- legacies not existing is they are historical constructs. And the most powerful historical constructs of colonial legacies that we have um, were developed in part in the United States and in part in among Latin Americanists themselves. So you have, especially after World War II, you have many more scholars in the United States really focused on learning more about Latin America at a time when the United States wanted to position itself as part of a, de- a developed first world and in order to separate itself from the rest of the region. And so one of the categories that U.S.-based scholars were able to develop in the 20th century was rooted in this question of colonial legacies that in part 19th century actors had already developed as well. So they were kind of drawing a bit on some existing historiography and they were developing it in a way to say how overpowering the Spanish rule was in terms of blocking possibilities for democratic development. So it's a switch that happens at that time in order to um, in part support this project for having the United States emerge as this kind of powerful first world nation. So it's more about interpretation of how historical interpretation happens. And so what I'm trying to get at is how this category of historical interpretation was also developing in the 19th century. Now, just quickly, so it's not just the United States scholars that were engaging in the development of colonial legacies. So were, especially in the 1960s and 70s, with the development of the uh, Dependista School of uh, coming out of ECLA and Latin America scholarship that was taught, was trying to show how there's um, dependency emerging in Latin America. They would point to a Spanish colonial legacy as explaining how these um, roots are so deep in terms of how economic extraction and colonial um, heritage and neocolonialism played such an important role in terms of how Latin America was positioned in the global economy. So colonial legacies have been developed time and time again in order to interpret history, which is different from saying that there was an Iberian imprint over the course of colonial rule. Those are two different things. And so what I'm highlighting is, okay, well, given that there is an Iberian imprint, how are people drawing on that imprint in order to tell us stories about what 
Latin America is or what its possibilities can be. And so I delve deeply in my book into the imaginaries that these 19th century historical actors had created in order to explain what were the obstacles to democracy and republicanism and their invention of colonial legacies went deep in order to extricate the obstacles and produce republicanism and democracy. Yeah, I, I mean, I must say as a Colombian uh, born and raised um, person, I'm very much aware how this idea of colonial legacies is so pervasive and it's, it's, it's such a part of our everyday life or way to understand our histories. So it's very, very important the work you're doing here of historicizing uh, and telling us how this imagining um, actually came to happen. Now, I want us to talk a little bit of, about another of your main interventions in the book. Um, and you mentioned this a little bit when you were talking about your training um, as in Colombian history, um, specifically how you learned the history of the 19th century. Um, and as you say in the book, this period has been characterized or understood as a moment of instability, chaos, and civil war. You also mention how many of the histories of the region assume a sharp and regional partisanship uh, that pity federalist uh, liberals versus centralist and reactionary conservatives. Um, but throughout the book, you actually foreground consensus among, among these elites. Can you tell us a little bit about this literature that has uh, portrayed the 19th century in such chaotic unstable ways and can you tell us why for you it's so important to emphasize on how these elite, elites actually had a lot more in common than what we usually think about them? Sure I think um, one of the things that I noticed and as I was revising the manuscript is that if you put the Republican experiments that Colombian elites were engaging in within a broader global perspective what emerges is that there was uh, there was a consensus around republicanism by the middle of the 19th century, which I think a lot of the historiography that focuses just on Colombia and goes deep into Colombian history that isn't it placing it within kind of this broader Atlantic global context, it misses the fact that monarchy was still a possibility. And in fact, the republics that were um, that had emerged in Europe by 1848, especially by the 1850s, those had crumbled. And monarchy was what ruled the day in, in France and Italy and several other places. It was, it was very difficult to have republics as, or, or democracy as, um, as a viable political project. And so that's one aspect of it. So republicanism was something that everybody agreed on. And yet, if you go kind of into Colombian history without that context, instead of seeing that consensus, you see much more of a division as different kind of kinship and friendship and political networks start to try to figure out how to make republicanism work. And a lot of democratic functioning does rest, especially in the case of Colombia, on the emergence of political parties, because that's how the political competition could work out, either through political party competition or through civil war. So I'm not denying that conflict. I'm, I, I'm not saying that conflict didn't exist. Of course it did. 
But those political contests and those and the civil wars that also emerged from those political contexts were trying to figure out the workings of republicanism itself. So that's kind of the the perspective that I take on it in order to better understand the significance of the kind of consensus that did emerge among elites around this Republican project. And so the way I was able to tease that out was precisely through the question of sciences and the different kinds of political sciences that they were developing at the time. Because although there definitely was the emergence of distinct political parties, the liberals and conservatives, even though they were in competition with each other, those parties were engaging in similar kinds of ways of producing knowledge and narratives about how politics would work. And so the techniques were similar. So the technologies they were using for through print culture, through their analysis of local populations, through their narratives about what these local populations were, um, how they were um, led, if how politically savvy they were, all these things were similar in their techniques, but they were different in the narratives that they told. And so this explains how sometimes the liberals would use print culture to try and rally populations towards their political party and conservatives would also do the same. Maybe now we can move to some of the like more specific cases you discuss in the chapters. And maybe we can begin with chapter one, um, a chapter in which you focus on um, the figure of Francisco José de Caldas. Unlike previous histories, you don't really analyze the life or the achievements of these very renowned men in Colombian history, but you actually tell us how the image of Caldas was used by the recently independent um, elites. Um, can you tell us a little bit about who Caldas was and how he was used Uh, by New Granada's elites as a way to legitimate their recently gained power from Spain? Sure. So that first chapter, uh, which focuses on Caldas, is also focusing on one of the first colonial legacies that um, were invented right around the period of independence and during the period of what scholars have come to call Gran Colombia, which is a very different political entity than what the rest of the book looks at. So this Gran Colombia included what we now consider to be Panama, Colombia, Ecuador, Venezuela, also parts of Guyana. So it's a very large, sprawling, continental kind of polity almost, right? That takes from sea to shining sea. And so this Gran Colombia was one that needed at its very core to legitimate its independence from Spain and needed to do so both before local audiences and before international audiences. And so one of the ways that they tried to do so was by perpetuating a black legend of the Spanish monarchy, of obscurantism, of tyranny, of ignorance, of perpetuating ignorance among local populations. And so that was such an important project precisely because this would allow the Republic to show itself as a beacon of enlightenment and knowledge production and education and circulation that the Spanish monarchy had created obstacles to. 
So that's one of the legacies that they're trying to battle. And the other goal that Gran Colombian political leaders based in Bogota wanted to achieve was a centralization of political power around Bogota. Mm -hmm. And they would try to legitimate that centralization because they needed more than centralization. It was to ensure quick and um, easy circulation of troops and of monies in order to continue to fight these wars for independence. Because Gran Colombia itself was founded through the uh, foundational law in December of 1819, and then the Constitution of 1821 really established Gran Colombia as a republic. But even though it may have established it as a republic, it still had not been recognized internationally as an independent republic. And so it was with this foundation, with also um, quite a bit of diplomatic work that was linked to scientific expeditions that the Gran uh, Colombian regime wanted to fund for themselves, this was a way in which Gran Colombia could present itself as producing knowledge for the world. And so Caldas became this figure that just encapsulated everything that the Gran Colombian Republic needed, especially those who were based in Bogota, because Caldas became, for them, so Caldas himself, before Gran Colombia, Caldas was one of thousands of uh, botanists and naturalists that were engaging in scientific expeditions that were sponsored by the Spanish monarchy. And so this is something that more recent historiography has been able to highlight, uh, how the Spanish monarchy was continually engaging in these kinds of expeditions for production of knowledge. So the narrative that the Spanish monarchy was engaged in obscurantism is just demonstrably false. <laughs> And yet it's still something that continues to be with us as we continue to perpetuate, especially in Colombia, perpetuate Caldas as the founder of geography or as the founding scientist of Colombia because it denies all the other folks that were engaging in scientific endeavors over the course of, this, of Spanish rule. And so there's this kind of distancing and silencing and highlighting Caldas as this founding father in order to highlight a national story of struggle and of, of enlightenment in part. And what's so useful, the reason Caldas becomes so useful is precisely because during the wars of independence, during the Reconquista, Caldas, along with actually several others um, who were kind of the leading intellectual elites at the time, um, the uh, Morillo and his armies had executed Caldas. And so he, his story of martyrdom is, becomes very compelling for the um, Gran Colombia regime and thereafter. Um, so it's, it's this, this is the narrative that becomes very powerful. And it becomes useful because, um, so, the print, so the, what the chapter reveals is how the printing press, the national um, newspaper in Colombia, would, at the same time that it would run editorials about the significance of centralism, what they called centralism versus federalism, and how important it was in order to ensure independence. Parallel to that, the um, Colombian newspaper um, would run reprints of the Semanario de la Nueva Granada, which was the scientific um, weekly newspaper that Caldas edited uh, in New Granada before the, pro uh, like right around the period of independence in 1808. 
And so it's kind of that reprinting and reworking and rethinking of Caldas in that light that helped legitimate this independence project um, for the period of Gran Colombia. Yeah, and, and the importance of Caldas comes through not only this chapter, right, but also in the following chapters where you talk a lot about the Instituto Caldas, right? And this is not um, a coincidence. Uh, can you tell us what this space and what this institution was? Because what you what you are arguing is that it became a space of sociability for elites. And, and that through the Instituto Caldas, both liberal and conservatives tried to create a, what you call a political economy of circulation. And one that, again, was supposed to overcome pervasive, quote unquote, colonial legacies. Right. So can you tell us about about the Instituto Caldas and also about what you talk about in chapter three, about the push to eliminate resguardos? Um, and how the Instituto Caldas was actually um, uh, like important in all of this story, and also how it was important to train people and uh, engineers and surveyors that could actually, you know, come into like a way or a method to actually divide these lands, and how it actually kind of was an, a not quite successful uh, project. Oh, absolutely. So. Um... So I'm glad you draw the connections, especially between the Instituto Caldas and what um, eventually becomes the Colegio Militar, which is also linked with another project, which I talk about in the other chapters, which is the Comisión Coreográfica. And so all of these projects are, are interlinked and they are bipartisan. So, uh, uh, so the Instituto Caldas quickly is very much linked to the legacy of Caldas. So one of the things that Caldas had proposed in his seminario in 1808 was the development of a kind of education in engineering and natural history and biology and chemistry in order to foment knowledge of the país of a country and, and bring productivity and uh, essentially what we would call development, right? So that was kind of this project that was developed by Caldas, which was a project that was not so far away from some of the projects of the Spanish monarchy in terms of having scientific expeditions, but technical expeditions that were geared towards identifying the resources that could be useful for empire. So there's a lot of continuity in terms of thinking about what these projects would look like. So instead, of course, of naming the Instituto, you know, the Instituto of the Expedición Botánica, which is not how they call it, they do it in the Instituto Caldas to honor Caldas. So this is, again, kind of a, a invoking this mythical figure, this founding father figure who was martyred by the Spanish monarchy in order to uh, develop this new um, project, which is essentially a space for, of sociability that was not limited just to Bogotá. And so... It, so what I do in the chapter, and this was in part thanks to the digitization of uh, national newspapers and also provincial newspapers that I was able to access, that I was able to do kind of a search for the different Instituto Caldases that were set up in a variety of provinces right around the time of the first founding, which did occur in Bogota. 
And what you start to see is that if you do a kind of cross-bibliography, in other words, the names of the people that had signed on to forming these Institutos if you trace these names, they end up revealing that there were people from the liberal, the emerging liberal party and from the emerging conservative party. There were people from the Draconianos and there were people um, from kind of all like the different factions of the conservative and the liberal parties. And they, some of them were prominent generals that actually fought against other uh, prominent liberal generals that were fighting against prominent conservative generals. And these were also part of these institutos that were set up. So you start to see through the Instituto Caldas how there are uh, not just national leaders and intellectuals that are participating in this um, space of sociability that was intended primarily for gaining better local knowledge and of uh, resources and industry as well. There, this is happening from Bogota to uh, Medellin, and it would happen in all kind of the capital cities of each of the provinces that existed at the time. And so this allowed for not just sociability in the provinces, but then also circulation from the provinces to Bogota and then back out to the provinces. So you see that um, through this Instituto Caldas, um, several of the folks that were involved in the foundation in Bogota, those were also the folks that were involved in creating the Colegio Militar. Um, so Lino de Pombo, Manuel Ancizar, they're kind of in the background of creating the Colegio Militar or the military school that was in part modeled on West Point in the United States. Um, and the idea behind this military school was less about uh, just training all kinds of military folk. It was intended more than anything to really educate the best of the best from the provinces in engineering and geography and um, cartography and all of these sciences that were deemed necessary for getting a better sense for what was available in the country that by then was New Granada. So the Instituto Caldas um, is formed after you know, New Granada, um, after Venezuela and Ecuador secede from Gran Colombia, the new republic that emerges is New Granada. And so the Instituto Caldas identifies the young local uh, provincial young men who would best benefit from the education that they could get at the Colegio Militar. And so I was able to draw out also from a lot of, I was lucky enough that the work of the Colegio Militar, the students' work was, is archived in the National Archive in Bogota. And I was able to identify who were the students there, what kind of work they did, and what kinds of maps they needed to draw. And this allowed me to see how these, this was not just a Bogota project, it was a provincial project that involved circulation and that the conception of what the nation needed to be politically at the time was less about centralization and more about this question of circulation. And there was consensus around that idea. And before I move on to Resguardos, this idea of circulation is also something that was identified as a need to overcome an obstacle that these intellectuals were thinking about had been created by the Spanish monarchy, and that was the lack of circulation. So what they saw at that time in the, in the middle of the 19th century was that the Spanish monarchy had been exploitative, and instead of allowing wealth to circulate within, among local provinces, 
not just kind of um, local, you know, not just material wealth, but wealth of ideas and wealth of how people would communicate with each other, et cetera. What the Spanish crown had done was focus all the wealth to be extracted from these local areas and then just taken out to the metropole. And so in order to combat this extractive colonial legacy, so what the dependistas would identify as a major cause for dependency, these mid-19th century intellectuals are engaging with this, these dependency ideas and theories. And so to combat this um, that dynamic, they were projecting this idea of what we needed was circulation. And so this was also something that elites had a consensus on. So this project then, from this project emerged the Colegio Militar. And in the Colegio Militar, you have all these students that were educated. They were the best of the best. You could not have a more upstanding, moral, and well-educated crew or troop, if you will, in the Colegio Militar. And yet, their efforts at identifying the communal lands that needed to be broken up and divided, that project was incredibly difficult, even for the best trained individuals to carry out. And so that, that actually takes us to a whole another colonial legacy, which was the colonial legacy of the Indio Miserable, the miserable Indian that was supposedly created by the Spanish monarchy. And so the focus of the book is not about whether or not the Spanish monarchy had been objectively exploitative of indigenous populations. That's not the question that I explore. Instead, what I explore in that third chapter is the extent to which several elites had engaged with thinking about how the Spanish monarchy had created poverty and a miserable Indian. And so they use this category of the Indio Miserable in order to do that. But what's ironic is that there was such a thing in the Spanish monarchy as, as an Indio Miserable, but it had a very different kind of legal stance over the period of monarchical rule. It, was, it allowed indigenous populations to make claims on the monarchy in order to receive certain benefits. And so that category was redeployed during the middle of the 19th century to say, see, we can point to how miserable indigenous populations are in resguardos, and it's because these are lands that are held in common by indigenous populations, and the, although the leaders of these communities may be able to have a certain amount of wealth, the vast majority of the populations on these resguardos are, um, are very poor, and they're exploited, etc. That's how they talked about resguardos. And so what their ideal was, was to break up these resguardos in order to make each indigenous person an, kind of an equal member or equitable member of the republic, to make them into Republican citizens. And so the reason, and, and I get into this chapter, and actually from that chapter, I revised that chapter quite a bit and turned it into, um, or took some themes from that chapter to create an article that's coming out with the Journal for Latin American Studies. And it's highlighting precisely how indigenous populations in resguardos were very much aware of the new kinds of legislations and new kinds of techniques that were being deployed by these Republicans in order to divide up indigenous communal lands. And it also demonstrates how some folks that were members of these indigenous communities, they actually thought it was a good idea and would engage and participate in the selling off of indigenous lands 
and others did not. And there was an immeasurable amount of conflict and contestation over these very contentious processes. And what you see is that it's not just the elites that are engaging the tools of democracy and Congress and legislative sessions in order to do this, so are indigenous populations. And so ultimately that there isn't the success that these elites wanted for the breakup of indigenous resguardos means that many of the indigenous folks that were involved in the process had also engaged the levers of government that were emerging. So it shows a much more complex picture than one in which Generally speaking, it's um, the surveyor is like this corrupt person who just wants to exploit local indigenous populations or that the local indigenous populations are just atavistic and are unaware of the laws and regulations that have a direct role and impinge upon their lives. Yeah, it's very interesting how you tell us about this construction of the indigenous identity, right, in opposition to the figure of the Indios in the colonial period. Um, maybe now we can kind of move forward and maybe discuss the convoluted decade of the 1850s, right? Um, a lot of things happen in this period, but two of the most important important changes were actually the institution of universal manhood suffrage and the abolition of, of slavery. Can you tell us a little bit about these changes and how at least temporarily they threaten the dominance of both liberal and conservative elites? How did the science, what you call the science, and the and the you know you analyze different historical figures that actually use the science of constitutionalism to solve some of the problems posed by these historical transformations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this um, this was probably the most difficult problem that I tackle in the book because it's very difficult to get um, a handle on. So essentially what's going on in the middle of the 19th century in New Granada, which in the middle of the 19th century, it's also undergoing several constitutional changes and even name changes. So there's a lot of volatility that's going on in this period. And it's occurring in a way that is aware of not just the failed Republican projects in Europe that have returned to monarchy, but it's also occurring at a time when the United States and Brazil and Cuba are engaging in second slavery. So while there is a ramping up deep ramping up in places like the United States that's a republic and yet has slavery, and you have places like Brazil that still has monarchy and ramping up slavery, and Cuba, which has monarchy and ramping up slavery, what's going on in New Granada is a concerted effort to abolish slavery altogether. And so the way that I tackle this, this problem in the book is looking at it from the question of territoriality which is something that tends to be rendered invisible when um, historians and scholars think about democracy and uh, republicanism, because oftentimes it becomes a question of individual rights. But in order to understand how we got to the point of individual rights, we have to first think about how governance was worked out through cities and through territories, because that's 
what granted political rights to individuals was individuals in community, and at least under the period of Spanish monarchical rule. And then when the crisis of the Spanish Atlantic monarchy occurred with Napoleon's invasions, the sovereignty had reverted to the pueblos. And the pueblos, translated into English, often gets turned into to the people. But really what pueblos literally means is the towns. And it's the towns that gain regain their sovereignty. And this is the logic that structures a lot of what is going on in terms of these political experiments in New Granada. How to think about the pueblos and which pueblos get to have sovereignty. And so that is why cartography and territorial divisions become so important during this period, because there needs to be clarity constitutionally and geographically over which pueblos are going to have political rights. And so you have these constitutional transformations, the science of constitutionalism, as Jose Maria Samper calls it, um, as a way of thinking about what is the correct balance of sovereignty from individual to a place, whether it's a nation or whether it's a territory, kind of what's the right balance to strike. And initially, Samped is very much about individual sovereignty, kind of radical experimentation with individual rights. So what you end up seeing is quite a bit of constitutional experimentation, both at the level of national governance and in provincial constitutions during this time. So it's a super complex story, and I definitely encourage folks to, uh, maps definitely help. And so there's a wonderful cartographer that I worked with through the University of Nebraska Press, Erin Greb, and so she was able to help develop this map of New Granada that showed the territorial changes from the 1830s, which is when New Granada emerged out of Gran Colombia, up until 1853, all the kind of new provincial divisions that emerged through a combination of individual laws and new constitutions to show how essentially what was going on from this period, of, especially from the 1840s into the early 1850s, was a greater enfranchisement, not yet of individuals, but more and more provinces. So you would have these new provinces that would emerge that would have sovereignty for the first time and be able to um, assert themselves as separately, separately from more dominant cities that had previously been able to extract wealth from, its, from what they had considered to be their hinterlands. So you have people in cities that previously had no political voice in government now having that voice. So you have that happening when you have more and more political divisions creating new provinces. And so this kind of increasing level of provincial creation then culminates in a whole new constitution that does away with territorial rights. Sovereignty becomes vested in individuals. And this is occurring in 1853, which is after the passage of the law abolishing slavery in May of 1851. And so this, when it comes into effect and then is supported by the Constitution of 1853. So you have slavery being abolished. You have universal manhood suffrage. This means that there's no literacy requirements, no property requirements. Any man who's over the age of 21 or married can vote. And this is something that hasn't really been discussed as much by 
historians of Colombia, it tends to get kind of sidelined or not given the, uh, the significance that it, it, that it has given what's going on in the United States with the ramping up of slavery and the expansions of slavery in other places. So this is, this is a pretty radical experiment. But then the Constitution of 1853 also gets dismissed as uh, Constitución para Ángeles, a constitution for angels, because it would be impossible to uh, implement it. And in part, this is because this constitution, which has given universal manhood suffrage, to everybody within the republic. And they, so this suffrage not only meant that everybody could vote, but there was, it does away with an electoral college. Voters directly voted for their president. They directly voted for the Supreme Court. They directly voted for Congress and for their provincial governors. I mean, this is a very radical way of doing politics, even by today's standards. And this is something that doesn't really get the attention it, it, it deserves, in my opinion. So much so that not only do you have that national constitution allowing for direct elections, there are several provinces within New Granada that also are developing their own constitutions. And this, I think, is something that really is an area that merits further research. So I don't talk about it so much even in this book, but there's the pr province of Vélez, which develops its own constitution. And it includes suffrage rights for women as well. So not just men. In 1853, <laughs> which is radical in terms of women's rights and suffrage rights. And so this is something I think that really is a place that merits much more further work. And so you have this remarkable experimentation that nevertheless creates quite a bit of conflict. Because even though you have a consensus around the development of the post constitution, which oftentimes gets portrayed as like a radical liberal project, but what I also managed to do in the book is show how the members of Congress that ultimately passed this constitution, several of those members of Congress were actually conservative. So there was a consensus around this idea of universal manhood suffrage. It wasn't just a liberal project. And there was a reason why conservatives actually were in favor of this, precisely because of how effective conservative party members were in fomenting uh, their connections to the Catholic Church and through members of the Catholic Church reaching out to popular sectors that ultimately became much more powerful voting bloc. And that way, allow for the voting in of members of the conservative party into political power, including the first president of New Granada to be voted in to office through universal man and suffrage. He came from the conservative party, not from the liberal party. And so this kind of measuring out of these uh, liberal parties and conservative parties in terms of where their political force lay with popular sectors, the liberals did not have very good calculations in terms of how much of their strength was with popular sectors. And so this created conflict to the point of one of the major civil wars of Colombia uh, that came right after the passage of the 1853 Constitution and was related to how the political system would work in the republic. And so in the wake of the civil war, which was tremendously disruptive and fought, was fought not just in Bolivar, but also in several provinces, the liberals and conservatives from both parties, many of whom had ties to the Instituto Caldas, came back together for a new round of constitution making 
that return sovereignty to the states rather than individuals. So you have the emergence of the United States of Colombia. And so each of the nine states that emerged from this experiment become sovereign. And that meant that each of these nine states could develop their own constitutions. And these constitutions could determine and put limits on who had the right to vote. And the national government did not have a right to intervene in that form of constitution making. So it returned not only sovereignty to the states territorially, by creating these nine states, it also did away with that expansion of political rights to different territories. So many of the places that previously, you know, at, at the beginning uh, with the formation of Granada, at least they had a political voice because there had been about 19, 20 provinces, which expanded to about 35, 36 provinces. Now there are only nine. And the capital cities of each of these nine states were, was where political power was concentrated in order to name representatives to Congress, et cetera. So it's this kind of balancing act and experimentation that's going on politically that's also being supported by the sciences of um, geography and cartography in order to figure out what the territories are like, what the population is like, and how um, circulation occurs within each of these places, and also the science of constitutionalism. They're linked. And Jose Maria Samper, which is one of the figures I focus on, but also Manuel Ancizar, they had very deep knowledge of the geography and of local knowledge of populations that informed their constitution writing. We're running a little bit out of time, but uh, we usually like to end our interviews by asking if there's any topic, any you know, important intervention that perhaps we didn't have the chance to discuss that maybe you want to talk a little bit more just to tell our listeners about your, you know, your project here? So I think I'd go back to um, this question of colonial legacies in terms of what's kind of the bigger historiographical payoff of thinking about how constructed they are, because it's not just something that I think is important for Colombian audiences to think through how these categories get to be constructed and how they allow us to imagine of our past and what it means for the things that are possible in the future by kind of really thinking about it in terms of like how these interpretive categories are constructed and how much power, what are the powerful forces behind the construction of that narrative? If we start to kind of deconstruct that a bit, we can start to see a very different kind of perspective, not just for Latin American history, not just for Colombian history, not just for Latin American history, but also for the history of the United States. So if we think this category of colonial legacies is so powerful. Some of these ways of thinking about the past were created in the 19th century. They were recreated in the mid-20th century. And yet, we see these so powerfully for Latin America, but we don't see these colonial legacies for the United States, a place that still has an electoral college and arguably still has many legacies from the period of English uh, colonial rule that were never really imagined by historical actors in the late 18th or early to mid 19th century. There wasn't this kind of way of rejecting British imperialism precisely because the early American project was one of ramping up slavery and pushing out indigenous populations rather than what you see in places like Colombia and Spanish America, where there was a greater inclusion of indigenous populations and work towards making them Republican citizens and also abolishing slavery and including 
the newly free populations as part of the republic. So you have a very distinct contrast in terms of what the political histories of these places are. Up until now, these histories have been seen as United States is orderly and economically developed on the backs of slavery and exploitation of indigenous populations. And that places like Spanish America, like Colombia, were chaotic because they had so many civil wars, civil wars that were fought precisely because they were trying to work out what these rules of the game would look like. So it's kind of reframing how we think about not only what the colonial legacies are, but the, their meaning and what our possible futures could look like. Okay, so just uh, to you know finish off this interview, just tell us what you're working on right now. What are your current projects and like future plans? Oh, sure. So my so at the beginning of the interview, I talked about how I had revised and revised and revised the dissertation. It became what is now my second book project, and so. It's um, currently under contact, a contract with the University of Pennsylvania Press. Um, the provisional title right now is Columbia's Paper Empire. So in this book project, I actually go back in time towards... Um, so in the first book, I start with the um, 1820s Gran Colombia. Uh, Columbia's Paper Empire goes back towards the um, end of the 18th century when there were several imaginaries of what Colombia meant. And so it's opening up how the very imaginary of Colombia was something that was from the age of revolutions. And it was, and it was a Colombia that it was imagined in some places continentally. So places like um, some of the cosmopolitan Colombians that I um, focus on are people like um, Francisco de Miranda, who had traveled to the United States at a time when it was known as Colombia, because Colombia was, of course, drawing on this uh, ideal of Columbus and what a, a kind of new historical imagining of Columbus that separated him out from other conquistadors of his day and made him this unique, uh, versatile genius that was mathematically kind of um, profound and new and a visionary that knew what other people didn't know. And so creating this figure of Columbus allowed for like the mythical creation of a Columbia in opposition to a Britannia. And this was the Columbia that Francisco Miranda kind of was enamored by when he was touring the recently independent United States. And so like Miranda, though, there were several others that were also engaged in this imagining. And so in many ways, my new project is about the public spheres, not just in uh, Caracas and Bogota, but also Philadelphia, Paris, London, and I'm working through if I'm going to talk about Jamaica or Santo Domingo or kind of how I'm going to work out the Caribbean dimension of this project, but it's very much there, so I have to kind of figure that out. But it's kind of thinking about how these public spheres are inventing this kind of age of revolutions, Colombia, that suited the geopolitical needs of the places of production. And I end with the actual creation of the Republic of Gran Colombia and its demise within a geopolitical setting. Okay, Lina, that sounds like a fascinating project. So thank you. I really enjoyed this interview and I learned a lot. And I hope, you know, our listeners, I'm sure they have enjoyed it as well. Um, so thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for inviting me. I really enjoyed talking with you.